uh, in a moment at the book of Galatians chapter 5 as kind of a, a jumping off point this evening. But also, I thought I would do something just kind of off the cuff to help you. A number of people obviously have been sending me texts and other uh, information and questions regarding, uh, regarding the matter of what is happening in the Middle East, okay? And I think I addressed that just a little bit when it first, uh, it first stirred up. Uh, but what is happening right now and will continue to happen is a desire for different groups to control the narrative, uh, to explain, for example, some student groups, Muslim student groups in the United States are essentially cheering the death of these Israelis and what was one of the most vicious and barbaric attacks possible. When you understand that uh, upwards of 40 infants were beheaded by these savages and you cheer for that, there is something fundamentally wrong with your moral structure, with your moral thinking. Uh, and the excuse that will be given is that, well, the Palestinians really own the land of Israel. You're going to hear this, you're going to hear this a lot in coming days. And by the way, <clears throat> that is a part and parcel of the intellectual landscape, the sexual, uh, pardon me, the secular intellectual landscape of our day. This concept that the Palestinians were removed from their land, that they were forcibly displaced. Nothing can be further from the truth. But uh, I want to give you a Bible answer. You say, Pastor, why is there always this conflict between Arabs and Jews now, especially between uh, the Palestinian peoples, why is there a conflict? So if you hold your place in, in uh, Galatians for the lesson, but turn in Genesis, please, to chapter 16. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 16, it all goes back. Uh, by the way, so much of what is happening in our world right now can be traced back to the book of Genesis. One of these days I'm gonna do a, an in-depth study on the book of Genesis. It is gonna wear you out when I start that. I promise you that, but we're gonna do an in-depth study on it because it answers so many questions as to why the world is the way that it is. Now, most of you will recall that Abraham had been given a promise by the Lord that he would have a son. The biological clock was not ticking. It had stopped ticking as far as his wife Sarah was concerned and all uh, human, uh, human ways. They were upwards close to 100 years old in their 90s, something like that. And, um, and Abraham had made this promise years earlier and the, the child never came and everyone was, was getting to the point of, well, how is this even possible, you know? And, and, um, and so the, the question was that Sarah brought it up to Abraham and said, well, maybe the Lord wants to fulfill his promise not through me, but through Hagar, my handmaiden. You'll recall this story. And so uh, she kind of uh, encouraged him in relationship to an illicit uh, relationship with Hagar, and Hagar did indeed become pregnant with uh, the baby boy that would be named Ishmael. Is everybody familiar with that? Okay, you're all familiar with that. So if you read <coughs> further into the text, Ishmael himself was not the promised son. The promised son was Isaac, okay? Now, I want you to pause there for a moment. The Muslim faith teaches the exact opposite of that exact opposite of that. Okay, so understand something. The Muslim faith is in error from top to bottom, and it, but I don't want to get into all of that because I've done that in years past and in, in times past. But um, so the promised son was not Ishmael. However, because he was of Abraham, God blessed him and said, you're going to be the father of many people. And as you trace this down through the Bible, you find out that, and I'm speaking a little bit in generality here, but you find out that the uh, Arab peoples in general, there's a lot of different brands of Arab people, but you'll find that the Arab peoples in general are descendant from Abraham through Ishmael. Is everybody following me about this so far? Well, whenever God makes a prediction in the book of Genesis, it has very long and far-reaching consequences that reach down into our present day. And so, <clears throat> if you look at Genesis chapter 16, 
Uh, look at what the Bible says in verse number 10, Genesis 16, verse 10. The angel of the Lord said unto her, speaking to, to Hagar, said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, thou shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Now, all of this came to pass. But the next verse gives a prediction that has very far-reaching consequences into the present time. And I wanna break this down to you because I'm giving to you the biblical narrative as to why there is always trouble in the Middle East and why that trouble centers on uh, Jews versus Arabs, okay? This is the Christian answer, this is the Bible answer. Look at verse number 12. Speaking of Ishmael, the Bible says, and he will be a wild man and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. That verse explains it all. Understanding that Ishmael was the progenitor of the Arab peoples, I'll break it down quickly, he will be a wild man, okay? There is a tendency among the Arab peoples to um, act in savagery, which you have seen. Oh, oh, Pastor Roy, oh, oh no, oh no, you said something that could be taken as racial. Stop. I love all people, okay? But there are characteristics of races. I'm part Italian. That is why I move my hands like this, okay? That is why I can be very dramatic, okay? Because Italian people are that way. We, we love pizza and we love drama and that's how it works. And, the, and, 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 and when we raise our voices, we're not yelling. We're just emphasizing, okay? That's very Italian, okay? So everyone knows you have different, it's so funny when I was up in Minnesota and, and ate at one of my favorite restaurants called the Norski Nook. It is a Norwegian themed restaurant it, with tremendous Norwegian-style food. And there were some guys there, three men that were in their 80s, okay? And they were just sitting there, and they were clearly Norwegians. You say, why? They weren't talking. <laughs> they were just, they were sitting together, they were just drinking coffee. I don't think they ex exchanged three words. It's a characteristic, okay? Nationalities have characteristics about them. And if you deny that, then you might as well just step right outside of reality, okay? So scripture says of these Arab people, they will be wild men, and his hand, Ishmael's hand, as well as his descendants, will be against every man. Okay, now, have you wondered about this? Not only do they not get along with the Jews, they don't get along with one another. They simply don't get along with each other. Okay, they're, they're, there's always fussing and fuming and fighting in the religion of Islam itself, and a religion is different from a race, understand what I'm saying. The religion of Islam itself is divided, and the Sunnis and the Shia want to kill one another. And if they ever did get together in common cause, then there would be real problems. But luckily they hate each other, and they're not about to do that. So he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. Do you see conflict there? In inherent in this people group, is conflict, okay? Inherent in Scandinavian people, at least after the Vikings did their thing, they, they're very peaceful, they're very calm people, okay? There's just characteristics here. Now notice this, <clears throat> and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Who in the world is that? Those would be the descendants of Isaac, the descendants of Isaac. In other words, Isaac, uh, the Jews, they will dwell together. Have you ever thought about this? They're half-brothers. Ishmaelites, the Arab peoples, and the Jews, they are half-brothers by uh, progenitor, by descendants. So uh, what will happen is these Arab folks will dwell in the midst of their brethren. Israel is surrounded by Arab nations. Is everyone following me this? And the Bible predicts ongoing conflict between these two. It's like two siblings who can't get along. It is, it, is, it is multiplied into the current geopolitical system that we have. Now, I'm not overplaying the case because this is a far-reaching Bible prophecy. Even if to your ears, you're like, well, I can't believe the Bible says such things. It, it's not criticizing one group or another. 
It's simply saying this is how it's going to be. And when you understand from the pages of scripture, ancient prophecy, we're watching this being fulfilled in our day and time. So again, it is not something that is, is, a, is a matter of race as in racism, but it is something that is a matter that is characteristic of people groups, okay? And if you deny that people groups have different characteristics, then I can't help you, okay? I can't help you. Now, having said that, we're all of one blood, we're all human, but different groups have different things going on, whether it would be their culture or whether it be their attitude or whether it be their actions, there's just different things going on. We can't deny that. You'd be crazy to try to deny that. So what, what does that mean? <clears throat> it means this, ongoing conflict in the Middle East is inevitable until Jesus comes again. Do I think that the current conflict is fulfilling some specific Bible prophecy? The answer is no but it is fulfilling Genesis 16. I don't think this battle and that battle, and I'm gonna go to the book of Revelation, I don't see any of that, okay? I don't see any of that. If I did, I'd let you know, Uh, but I don't see that. But what I do see is an ongoing fulfillment of this uh, prophecy. Now, (laughs) having said that, I listened to a, a Palestinian speaker, and this Palestinian speaker is Muslim, and she made, she's very well educated, she made the statement that you cannot view this situation as a theological conflict. Wrong. It is all about theology, okay? Hamas is a radical, ultra-radical Muslim group, and the eschatology of a large portion of Islam says that the only way to get their Messiah to show up is to have open conflict against the Jews. And they're waiting, they're thinking, okay, maybe this is our big conflict, and then our Mahdi, they call him the Mahdi, the Messiah will show up. This has everything to do with theology. And when you forget that, uh, you're dismissing what is a major part of the motive. Now, some people will say, well, Pastor Mahdi, um, you know, the the Palestinians were pushed out beginning in the 1800s. Uh, They were pushed out of their land. Not true, okay? I've been to Tel Aviv three times, probably more than that if you count back and forth trips here and there when I'm in the land of Israel. Uh, Tel Aviv is a beautiful modern city, about 75 years old. What was Tel Aviv before it looked like it does today? Very desirable, very desirable. Right on the Mediterranean, beautiful coastline, beautiful beaches. What was it when the Jews showed up in the 1800s? It was a desert. Pastor Monty, see these Jews got off these boats and they pushed everyone off their property. No, no, they didn't. They purchased that property from Arabs who owned it. It was all desert, okay? Now this is, what I'm telling you, is a matter of settled history. And as they purchased this area, they built a colony by purchasing the land. And eventually following World War II, this, this, this return to the land began in the 1800s. And eventually after World War II and the, the disaster of the Holocaust, it was agreed by the nations of the world that the Jewish people had to have a homeland. By then, their population in Israel, from purchasing land, building houses, building streets, making their little colony, <coughs> and all doing it by purchase, by then their population had exploded, okay? And at that point, it was concerning to some of the Arab folks and said they're going to take over. And ultimately, after World War II, you rem- will remember that a lot of property lines got changed. How many people realize that? You realize that, okay, Europe, the face of Europe, how are we gonna divide this, who gets this, how is this going to work? A lot of property lines got changed. And on May 14th, 1948, uh, Israel became a nation by fiat, of the United Nations, okay? Now, you know that I'm not a big fan of the United Nations. How many know that? How many know that? I think we should kick those scallywags right out of the country. They have no business being here, and it's a ridiculous organization. However, the one good thing they did was to acknowledge the need for a Jewish state. Well, Pastor Monty, why did the Jews return to what was called at the time Palestine? We now refer to it as Israel. It is properly referred to, it is biblically referred to as Israel. Why did the Jews return to Israel? They came back because that is their homeland. That is the land that God gave them in the pages of the Bible. And archeology, span by the way, not just the Bible, but archeology span proves that. Uh, the Temple Mount. What stood on the Temple Mount? Does anyone know what was on the Temple Mount? This is not a trick question. Does anyone know? 
the temple. The temple was on the Temple Mount. You cannot deny that historically, and yet the Palestinian people do. They deny that. The reason that all archaeological digging in Israel is highly politicized and controversial is because every time you turn a shovel of dirt, you find evidence of an ancient Jewish presence. Does everyone follow me? And it undermines the false narrative of the Palestinian people. Well, Pastor Monty, it was so unfair because when Israel became a nation, uh, then what do all these other people do? They should have done what thousands of Arabs did at the time. When Israel became a nation state, again, on its own land, given to it initially by God, purchased, much of it purchased by Jewish settlers, and then given by fiat of the United Nations, when Israel became a nation, they offered every Arab resident 100% full residency, meaning you'll have the same rights as any Jew, you can vote, you'll be part of our system, and by the way, thousands of them were like, yeah, this seems like a pretty good idea. We're going to join up. We said, Pastor, how did the Gaza Strip and, the, and all that, how did the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, how did that come to pass? There were groups of rabble-rousers telling the Arabs that they should not join the Jewish state. And a lot of people marched off into what became a refugee camp. If you're not going to be a citizen, of a state, we don't know what to do with you. By the way, that's a current problem in America, but we're not gonna touch that with a 10-foot pole right now. Uh, but you have to be a citizen, okay? And so they marched off to this, what, what initially was a refugee camp. Well, it continued to grow and to expand. Well, Pastor Monty, it, it would, the problem would be solved if the Palestinian people were offered their own separate state. How many have ever heard that? They have been offered by the Jewish nation a separate state five different times. Five times. Every time the offer is made, they have consistently, their leadership, the Palestinian Authority, or now Hamas, especially in Gaza, their leadership has rejected the offer. Now, I do not believe a two-state solution is a good solution. I don't believe in that at all. But they've been offered it over and over again. Pastor Mike, why won't they take it? Why won't they take Israel up on the offer? There's a real simple answer to that, and it is because if you're given your own land to form your own country and your own geopolitical state, you lose the victim card. At that point, you have to stand on your own two feet. And, and the last thing, by the way, Israel needs is another failed state, failed Arab state on their border. You've got Lebanon, what a disaster. You've got, uh, you've got Syria, what a it's all a disaster. They're surrounded by failed states, okay? That's the last thing they need. But I'm saying that the offers have been made and everything I've said, it, it's in kind of glittering generality and you can read about this, but everything I have said is a simple fact of history. And now, tragically, you have people who are not technically a state, though today some countries recognize you know, the Gaza Strip as a state, and you, you have people that aren't really there and, and, and they don't have their own electricity. How many of you knew that Israel supplies the vast amount of their electricity? Sure does. How about their fresh water? Israel supplies their fresh water to them, okay? Um, they're very dependent. And the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians is very odd. And when you, if you ever get to go over there, you'll actually see that. There are different zones, and Palestinian people have a different license plate, and they have to pass through security checkpoints if they're coming into Israel to work. But there were, up until you know a few days ago, there was a lot of interaction back and forth. There was a lot of interaction back and forth, but security was still necessary. Why is security necessary? Because they have a long-standing reputation for terrorism. That's the bottom line. And Israel has faced that time and time again, the threat of that, blowing things up, knifing people, all of that kind of thing over and over again. So you say, well, Pastor Ronnie, what, what happened? Well, I'm not going to delve into you know, a big conspiracy thing. It's really a colossal, it's hard for me to believe that there was a failure of the Mossad, which is the intelligence of the, of the state of Israel. They're, they have the best intelligence in the world. Hard for me to believe there was a failure there, but I'm not getting into that. It, it, the invasion that they faced was of such a magnitude, keeping that a secret 
with the multiple thousands of people that were involved in that. I don't understand that, but whatever happened, and I'm not gonna talk a conspiracy theory with you, it's just that's a thought, I'm just throwing that thought out to you. Whatever happened, it happened. I'm not worried about what was behind that. It happened. And people were massacred. And I don't care who you are and what you believe, if you think it's okay to behead uh, babies, I have a problem with you. And there is no intellectual argument in the world that can defend that kind of behavior. Is everybody following? One? There, there's just, there simply is none. Well, Pastor Monty, this huge retaliation. I'm not surprised, nor should you be. If that was your baby that was slaughtered by savages, if that was your daughter that was kidnapped and raped by savages, I think you'd want retaliation. And I think that Israel as a state has been incredibly patient for decades and incredibly measured in their response to terrorism. And today I think they've had enough and they're planning to clean it up, hopefully once and for all. You say, Pastor Monty, will be cleaned up once and No, no. How do you know? Genesis 16. It's gonna keep happening, but it should be crippled to a point where they can hopefully live in some level of peace going forward on this. So I, I, just giving you off the top of my head something to think about because what you're gonna start hearing is all kinds of narratives. One of the narratives you're going to hear, and I'll get into my lesson, but we may not get it done. That's why you get a printout. Um, one of the narratives that you're going to hear is um, the humanitarian narrative, okay? And how, how difficult it is. The, West, uh, the, the Gaza Strip has no electric power right now. They have no food shipments coming in. They have no water coming in. And so it's going to get very desperate very fast. We have compassion over every individual who suffers because of this. Innocent individuals who suffer because of that, that should go without saying. We also, by the way, have compassion for every Israeli that's mourning the loss of a loved one or the kidnapping of a loved one. We have great compassion, all that. that, that it, we're Christians, that goes without saying. However, the problem needs to be solved. And the Gaza Strip used to be under the Palestinian Authority, uh, Mahmoud Abbas. He was, you know, whatever, they're all crooked, but uh, he was maybe less crooked and less violent. Uh, they voted, they voted to go under Hamas. Okay, they invited Hamas to rule them. Be careful what you wish for. Amen, Americans? <laughs> Be careful what you wish for, okay? And, and this is where we are today. And so um, keeping that in mind, if you'll view world events through a biblical lens, it will explain things to you and it will keep you balanced, okay? It will keep you balanced. And, and, and uh, of course, I get a little fired up. I shouldn't even say this because we're on video or it's live stream or whatever tonight. I get a little fired up about it. You know, we love Israel because God says we're to love Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem because God says we're to do that. They're God's chosen people. Now, they, they've rejected their Messiah, but one day they will come to Christ as their Messiah, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, 26. And so I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun to just buy an Israeli flag and put it on the flagpole under the American flag. Amen. And then I thought about it. I don't want you firebombed. We have a pretty church and I don't want it wrecked, okay? And I don't want, I don't want to, anyone's to, life to be threatened over me having a good time. So maybe I'll do that in my front yard and then I'll go to Greece for a week. All right, Galatians chapter five. Does anyone have a question about something I said? Because this is on the tip of everyone's mind. Anyone at all? I'd, take a, I'd entertain a question if anyone has one. Okay, good. You all, you all understand it. You all get it. Galatians chapter 5. Uh, I want us to look briefly tonight, if we could, beginning at verse number 19. Galatians 5 and 19. Now, the book of Galatians is Paul's polemic against Judaizing. Okay, we, we studied uh, Acts chapter 15 last Sunday morning. And the book of Galatians was written as an epistle that outlines the theological reasons that the Old Testament law is done, that we no longer follow the Old Testament law, that circumcision, those decisions that were made at the Jerusalem Council, this fleshes that out in theology. And the argument is this, that because the Holy Spirit lives inside our hearts as Christians, the Holy Spirit directs us and we don't just have a list of rules and regulations that we attempt and fail to follow. But if you will look at uh, chapter five, verse number 19, 
Paul says this, but if ye be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. The Holy Spirit is better than a written law, and he takes precedence over a written law if, if, you as a believer yield to him. And I'll try to get to that more. But then he says in verse number, tw- um, verse number 18, if you be led of the Spirit, you're not in the law. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Pause for a moment. Works of the flesh. If you do a little study about the, the word flesh, or sometimes the word body is used, it all has to do with our physical body and with the impulses of the body. Now, God designed us with impulses that are not wrong unless they are taken to extreme, okay? So, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, that is lust, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, that is strife, emulations, jealousy, wrath, strife, or rivalries, seditions, heresies. All these things are works of the flesh. Now notice, they're not all a fleshly impulse. We think of a fleshly impulse as lust. We think of it as hunger, but they're not all that, but they they come from our flesh. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, I tell you, as I've told you before, as I've also told you in the past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So fundamentally, those things consistently practiced are characteristic of people who are 100% given over to the flesh. Does everyone see that? To the impulses of the body. And remember, the mind is part of the body, so it includes everything that is about us physically. We could use this illustration, what we call the natural man. This is the natural man in his worst state. It is not to say that unsaved people all do these things. We're not saying that at all. But in the worst possible state of the natural man, the Apostle Paul has listed some things that are definitely, uh, that are definitely indicators <laughs> of flesh. Okay, now, verse number 22. In, in contradiction to this, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, all the things that the Holy Spirit produces. And notice, it is the fruit that is produced by the Holy Spirit in one's life. It does not mean that you are perfect at all of these things, but it means that the Spirit of God is developing these things in your life as you yield to Him. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. Now note the next words, uh, next word, temperance, temperance. Against such there is no law. Temperance. That word is used several times in the New Testament. And temperance is described as a characteristic that is produced by the Spirit of God. Look at your introduction. Temperance or self-control. Now, the word self-control is, is fine, but I like the word temperance better. The, the issue with the word temperance is we don't use it very much anymore, but it is a good word that should be resurrected because it says a little bit more than self-control. Temperance or self-control is a developing characteristic of every truly spiritual believer. In fact, self-control is one of the hallmarks of, genuine, of a genuine spiritual life. Remember, spirituality is not keeping rules. Spirituality stems from yielding to the Holy Spirit and allowing Him to develop spiritual character, character diametrically opposed to the flesh nature. While lost people often develop amazing levels of self-control, they are at a decided disadvantage without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Christians who do not model self-control demonstrate the shallowness of their true spiritual condition. Now, that last statement is really important because someone says, Pastor Monty, what does a spiritual person look like? Well, they cut their hair the right way and they wear the right clothes and they carry the biggest King James Bible they can find. No, none of that. What does spiritual look like? Spiritual looks like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, okay? Now, what is temperance? Let's ask ourselves a question. Look at point A. The primary word translated temperance in the New Testament is the Greek word ankaria. It is used as a noun, verb, and adjective in Scripture. In the Greek language, of course, just like the English language, they, have different, they had different endings that would indicate this. Well, what does this word mean? I did a quick word study 
because I think it, I, and I presented it here, I do this a lot, but I presented it here because I think it sheds some light on the idea of the word temperance. Kenneth Wiest, and he would be a standard uh, one to look at for, for words and their meanings in the Greek New Testament. He says that the word temperance means possessing power, strong, now note the next part, having mastery or possession of oneself or self-control. Now, do you see the word self-controlled is a little bit weaker than the idea of self-mastery, okay? So the standard of temperance is a very high standard, and it is based upon strength. Well, whose strength, Pastor Monty? Well, in the secular thinking, there are plenty of people who can be self-controlled. In our thinking, it is the strength of the Holy Spirit and his guidance and direction. Because the biggest, the big picture of the book of Galatians is the superiority of the Spirit of God over just, uh, just gritting your teeth and keeping the rules of the Old Testament. Uh, Vincent, he's another authority on the meanings of New Testament words. He says, holding in hand the passions and desires. In other words, watch this. I'm, I'm making a fist. They are under control. Okay, Paul is going to use similar words. I have this thing under control in this part of my life. Okay, temperance then is a general term applying to every desire of the flesh and every unbiblical action and attitude. Okay, temperance. I am controlling myself. Now, be honest, no one in this room can say, Pastor Monty, I am 100% have mastered myself and I'm in self-control. No one in this room can say that, okay? We all have our different levels of temptation, but as the Lord develops this character in us, we have more control. Someone who is markedly out of control is not spiritual. Pastor Mining goes, I just, I just was born with a short temper. Don't, don't give me that excuse, okay? When someone is out of control, it fundamentally means that there's a problem with them spiritually. Okay, so, um, so what are some of the, and I've just given a few to kind of broaden your thinking about the word temperance, the appetites of the body, the habits that we engage in, our speech. Wow, that's a big one. Are we in control of our tongue? Now the Bible says in James chapter three, the tongue can no man tame, but as the Holy Spirit develops temperance or self-control, we'll use that term, self-mastery, we find ourselves more careful about the things that they say. In my Christian life, for example, I've learned, you know, I used to just, I know you think I still do, but I don't. But I know you think I do. I used to just blurt out everything I was thinking. Pastor Monty, you do that all the time. No, you'd be amazed. <laughs> I really don't. I, I have more control over what I, what I say because sometimes, have you ever been about, have you ever had this experience? You're about to say something and then all of a sudden you get this little nudge on the inside that says, you probably ought not say that. Anyone ever have that experience? You know, that's the Holy Spirit and I'll tell you something, you'd better listen. And just as a practical point, silence, 99.9% .9 of the time, silence is the better part of wisdom, okay? And so, the, but I think the Holy Spirit prompts us in regard to this. So speech, thoughts, one of the major things that the Bible teaches is I can control my thoughts. And if I don't control my thoughts, bad things happen. We've covered all of that in our, our Peace of Mind series. Um, oh, here's one. I was just listing things as I was thinking of them. Spending habits. Spending habits. Well, Pastor Monty, can, can you really apply the idea of temperance to spending habits? You absolutely can. People who wildly spend money and then wonder why they don't have any of it, that is an intemperate use of money. Because remember, the general idea is self-mastery or self-control. And if I can't go into Walmart and just buy the thing I came there to get, and I fill a shopping cart and I bring it home, things that I didn't need, okay, then maybe there's a little bit of a control problem. And as a pastor, let me tell you, there's some folks that really, really struggle in regard to that matter. So um, look, if you will, working definitions then, based upon some of the, the more uh, strict theological definitions. Temperance is a mastery over one's passions. It is the virtue that holds our appetites in check. And, and by the way, appetites aren't bad. I, I love when I'm hungry. You know, do you ever get hungry? Yeah, that's an appetite. Do you know what hunger is? It's an indication that you need to probably eat something fairly soon. 
Um, in our lives as Americans, rarely do we allow ourselves to get to the point of hunger. <laughs> We're, we're eating all the time, okay? We stave off our hunger, but uh, it, that's something God built into us, okay? Uh, but in, in, in uh, temperance, it's the virtue that holds our appetites in check, controlling our rational will or regulating our conduct without being duly swayed by sensuous desires. Moderation is a key element of self-control. And I've taken that as a quote from Mr. Collins, key element of self-control. So do I, do I have control over my appetites and my passions? Okay, that's a question to ask because the Holy Spirit is developing temperance in our lives. Look at point two, temperance involves emotional restraint and self-control. It is the ability to resist sin, control appetites, emotions, and attitudes, and turn down opportunities for excess, even of good things. So a lot of times, well, okay, Pastor Money, temperance means that, that I'm going to stay within the Bible's boundaries regarding um, sexual intimacy. I'm going, to, that, I'm going to keep those rules. That's temperance. No, temperance has to do with how I conduct myself in legitimate ways, okay? And for example, food. And I will be the first person in this room to freely confess that there was a time in my life when I was a very intemperate eater, okay? I just ate everything that came my way, and if it was sweet, I consumed it, okay? I was, frankly, out of control and extremely intemperate in that. And that was not spiritual. Okay, now you don't usually hear this in a Baptist church from a Baptist preacher, but that was not spiritual. And it, 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 it indicated, I, I may have had other things together, okay, I was disciplined. Get up at five o'clock every morning, do my studies, blah, 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 I'm disciplined in that. But there was this area of my life that was out of control, okay? And I realized some years ago, I had to bring it back under control, okay? Why is temperance important? Temperance, and I've just given you a few reasons. Temperance promotes personal freedom. Extreme indulgence always leads to enslavement, okay? Paul recognized Christian liberty, but he cautioned, and I want you to see this, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, I printed it out. Paul said, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient, okay? They're not, it's not always a good idea. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. When I indulge any appetite to excess, I can create a habit, and we would use the word an addiction, okay? Pastor Monty, then you need to spell it out right now so I can get this right. How many donuts am I allowed to have? I, I, I can't do that, okay? But I can say eating a half dozen is just not expedient, okay? I, I can tell you that much. That, that, as Donald Trump would say, this I can tell you. I can tell you that much. Um, because, listen carefully, we come under the power of this, okay? Now, in our society, and I'm not going to harp on this all night, but in our society, we are sugar addicted. And I love it. I absolutely love it. It is the hardest thing for me to say no to, is something delicious and sugary and sweet. You said, Pastor Monty, you've been on the keto diet, your sweet tooth went away. No, it didn't. It is there with a vengeance, and it, a vengeance, and it is a constant battle, and you, Mr. Keto, are nodding your head because you know that does not go away. Okay, well, but let's not talk about this anymore. Okay, okay. What about, what about the cell phone? The addictive nature of the cell phone. Okay, we need to be temperate in our use of technology. Now, uh, that doesn't mean set aside technology because it's legitimate, right? There's legitimate uses for it. But if you're on that thing scrolling, and I double-dog dare you, I double-dog dare you, if you have an iPhone, I double-dog dare you to look at your, there's something on the iPhone, and you can ask Stephen how to find this, because um, I've seen it, but I, don't, I couldn't get to it to save my life. There's something that tells you the hours that you spend on your cell phone looking at the screen. Double dog dare you to look at that. Okay, that could be an indicator of an addiction that you're not even aware of, an addiction that is built into that technology by the creators of that technology to, to affect a person's mind. So um, anything that enslaves me, anything that I find that I have to have this, and I have to have it in increasing volume or intensity. Temperance promotes personal freedom. I don't have to have these things. I, I have the freedom to say no. 
I have the freedom to turn that down. I don't have to be enslaved by that. Number two, uh, next one, temperance prevents addictive behavior. It goes along with point A. By limiting myself even in legitimate pursuits, I prevent falling prey to addiction. Example, social media use can be addictive. While not rejecting it outright, self-controlled Christians are mindful of its dangers and purposely limit their exposure. Number three, temperance promotes success. I think this is so important in life, okay? Following unrestrained passions makes success in life virtually impossible. As a pastor of almost 35 years, this I can tell you. People who are self-disciplined, who know how to cut themselves off from whether it would be food or spending habits, whatever it is, and to discipline themselves typically end up in a better place than those who don't. Those who follow their passions, people who spend money on impulse, do not end up as successful as people who spend money by plan or by budget, okay? <clears throat> so following unrestrained passions makes success in life almost impossible. If, for example, you cannot get up at the same time every morning, maybe you have a sleep addiction, you will not have the same success as a self-disciplined individual. Okay, well, Pastor Bonnie, you're just an early riser. I don't like my alarm clock any more than you do. I don't enjoy that thing. Now, I am an early go-to-better, okay? I am conked out by 10 o'clock. Don't call me after 10 o'clock. Some of you night owls, that's so ungodly, keeping the devil's hours. Don't be calling me late at night. I, I, I get tired, okay? But I try to get up early every morning. So, by the way, that's psychologically good for you. Self-discipline, I'm on the next page, in spending habits, cash or credit, tends toward prosperity. Uncontrolled spending tends toward poverty. Isn't this obvious? So put the idea of temperance, okay? I have to master certain things, listen carefully, that are legitimate. It's not just talking about sinful things that we all agree are sinful, but it's talking about legitimate things. So for example, money is a part of all of our lives. Okay, I have to master my money or my money will master me. And I watch people all the time that struggle because they couldn't control themselves. Most of the time it's a lack of self-control, not a big emergency. And they got themselves in very, very deep. You say, Pastor Money, what's the answer? We should just give them a pay off all their debts, they start over again. No, 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 not the answer, not the answer. The answer is teaching them how to climb out piece by piece by establishing a disciplined or self-mastery relationship to money. That's all part of it. Okay, so what are some ways to develop temperance? I won't cover all this, but I've given you scripture, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm just mentioning it. Yield to the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, when God gives you an impulse, listen to the impulse he gives you. Okay, his spirit is there to maybe curb something that you're saying or to curb a behavior, listen to the Holy Spirit. Then Romans 8.15, mortify, the word mortify means to put to death, mortify the flesh. Paul said, for if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. Okay, so if you continue to give in to the impulses of the flesh, ye shall die. That's pretty strong language, but look what else it says, okay? But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now I want you to notice something in there. Some people say, oh, Pastor Monty, you know, I've, I've just got this horrible temptation and, and I've just prayed that God would take it away from me, okay? It'd be nice if he did, but how many know he doesn't always do that? So what does it say there? Paul said, if ye through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh. So there's a partnership in mortifying the deeds of the flesh. It is the power of the Holy Spirit and my yielding to him, Romans chapter six, but then it is me being willing to do this. Does everybody follow what I'm saying? It's not, some people just think, okay, God's gonna step out of heaven and boom, completely transform me and I'm gonna be perfect. There's not one verse of scripture that says that, but when I partner together in yielding to the Spirit of God, and I am willing, and he is certainly willing, that is something that, <coughs> that puts us on the right path. And then the body does not have as much power as it one time did. Point C, another way to develop temperance, discipline your body. Boy, uh, Paul talked about this. In fact, 1 Corinthians 9, I need you to turn there, and this might be all I get to tonight, but you have the lesson outlined fully in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you would look there, please. 
the discipline of the body, okay? Uh, what, did, what did Paul say? Look at verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. And he's using here an athletic illustration of running a race, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. Okay, so one guy gets first place. Then he says, so run that ye may obtain. Oh, by the way, just a little aside there. Did you notice it says, so run that ye may obtain? That is not a comparison, it is a contrast. In a foot race, people run the race, one guy gets first place, one guy gets the prize. In, in that verse, verse 24, he says, so run that ye may obtain. Look at me. Do you know why it says ye and not you? Because ye is plural. That's one of the beautiful things the King James Bible does for us. Okay, it gives us plural. So he's saying, in a foot race, one person wins. But then he says, all of you Christians can all win if you run the right way. Does everyone see that? It's a little distinction, but it's a good preaching point. There's not just one winner. There's the potential for everyone to win if they run the right way. Modern versions of the Bible don't show that because there is not in contemporary English a plural for the second person. It's you, both singular and plural, but that's a good point. Okay, now, <clears throat> verse, verse, uh, verse 25. Every man that striveth for the mastery, you're involved in athletic competition, is, there's our word, temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So he's continuing the contrast, not comparison. He's continuing the contrast. I therefore, Paul says, so run, not as, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that's beating at the air, flailing. Now note this, verse 27. But I keep under my body and bring it, my body, my flesh, those are the same concept. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be cast away. What, disapproved. No good anymore. What, what is Paul saying? Our flesh and our body is our biggest enemy. I, I'll tell you, that's my biggest enemy. I look my biggest enemy in the mirror every day. My biggest enemy is me. And Paul says, I have to, the, the idea of keeping under my body, that idea is I have to suppress these things, which is the concept of temperance. And we know we yield to the Spirit of God and cooperate with his power. But Paul is very blunt here. He says, just like an athlete trains for the big moment, every Christian should be every day training for his big moment, which is running the race of the Christian life. So I'll give you some practical points. Number one, learn self-discipline by delaying legitimate gratification. Don't eat until it's supper time, okay? I love to graze. I'm famous for grazing. I'm famous for putting stuff together that God never intended to go together. Rummaging around in the refrigerator and finding new taste, treat sensations before dinner and then being completely full and then Kelly serves dinner. You say, what do you do then? I eat my dinner. <laughs> Okay, on top of it, um, I'm giving you some suggestions. Delaying legitimate gratification. Hey, no sex before marriage. Boom. That's still taught in the Bible. Oh, Pastor Monty, that's so primitive. Well, there, it's still in Scripture. Okay, so, you know, hold off on it. Hold off on it. Let's get off of that one. Okay, number two. Learn self-control by limiting legitimate gratification. Okay, now remember, temperance does not just have to do with avoidance of evil things. In fact, really, that's kind of a different topic altogether. Temperance is controlling legitimate impulses so that they don't take over. So one helping is likely enough. But I know we like seconds, and I do too. I'm not criticizing anyone, I'm just, just telling you. That's self-control, and I can build self-control by uh, limiting legitimate gratification. Learn self-control by forcing yourself to do things that are good for you. Go to the gym, just throwing that out. Pastor, why don't you just like going to the gym? I hate it. I hate it. I don't want to go. I leave it, the mornings I go, I leave at six o'clock in the morning. I don't want to go. It's getting cold out, now you have to face the cold. I don't want to go. There is not one part of me that wants to go. And do you know what? I generally speaking go. <laughs> I can tell you how, but generally speaking, I go, okay? Uh, yeah, you do that, okay? Uh, a while back, I read some article and, just, and, and read all about, and I read several articles about the health benefits of an ice-cold shower. How many have ever heard of this? Okay, yeah, health, tremendous health benefits. Pastor Monty, what do you do? Well, I take a hot one first, 
and then I turn it down to ice cold and stand there for three minutes, and, I'm, and I count one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Yeah, I do that thing, right? And I count, and I count for three minutes, and I am so uh, cold and upset and shivering and angry and awake. By the way, nothing like that to wake you up. And, and you say, Pastor, why would you do that? Because it's good for me. Now, I'm not going to promise you I'm doing it my whole life, but I've been doing it for like four weeks every day. And, uh, and it's gotten, it's as miserable as it was the first time. Let's just, let's just be fully honest about it, okay? Uh, but forcing myself to do things that are good for me that I don't naturally want to do, that's a good way. Uh, learn self-control by living a reasonable schedule. People that are sca- uh, scattered and have, don't know what they're doing from one minute to the next, they're not going to succeed. Temperance would control that. Learn self-control by setting aside time for self-enriching activities. Reading good books is a good place to start. I'm past my eyes, I don't have time to read a book. Yeah, but you sure spend an hour and a half on Facebook reading about Susie Q and her wonderful trip to Walmart. I just, I, you know, there's, there is time for what we want to have time for. Six, learn self-control by denying distractions, okay? Have you ever felt like your phone controls you? Well, I have sometimes. It bings and pings starting at seven o'clock in the morning. And you know what I do now? I set it aside for my study time. And I don't even bother with it, okay? Uh, Kelly can get through to me if she needs to get through to me. But I try to set it aside. Do you know, folks, that's a lot of discipline because we're trained to be curious. Every time it, Pastor, I just can't stand it. If it, it binged and, and, and I got to know what's happening. Number one, nothing's happening. It's somebody sending you a mindless emoji, okay? And you know that. That's number one. But number two, if it bothers you that much, put it in a different room. <gasps> be still my heart, but what if there's a big emergency? Tell it, you know, a little secret. There isn't. But what if the outside chance, the outside chance, something awful has happened? Then by the time you look at it, it will be at least as awful as it was and maybe even more awful. So you just, just in reality, we get controlled by this. And do you know that they want you controlled by that? You get that, right? Because the whole idea is the more screen time you have, the more you'll buy, the more blah, 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 blah. We won't go into all that. Okay, real quick, uh, boy, just look at this. You can look this up yourself. I think I've given some references here. Good examples of self-control. Daniel in the Bible wouldn't defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. He could have just partied it up in Babylon, but he didn't do that. And it was much harder for him to maintain a kosher diet in Babylon than it was in Israel. Very, very difficult. He did it anyway. Job controlled his sexual desires by refusing to feed them. He purposed in his heart that he would not look lustfully upon a woman. Job 31, verse number 1. Paul, we read about it already in 1 Corinthians 9, was motivated to serve Christ, that he disciplined his body in order to prevent disqualification. And then, of course, the ultimate example is Jesus. In facing Satan's temptations in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus refused each one of those temptations. He refused the temptation to turn stones into bread, though he was hungry from a 40-day fast, and hunger is a legitimate impulse of the body. He refused the temptation to um, to presume upon the grace of God, cast yourself down from the pinnacle, the angels will bear you up. In other words, put God to the test. He said no to that. That was satanic, of course. And then he wouldn't worship Satan. Satan said, he, Satan took him to Mount Hermon and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he said, now you can have all of this if you'll just bow down and worship me. That was a shortcut. He said, well, Pastor Monty, won't Jesus have all of the kingdoms of the earth? Oh, yes. Book of Revelation says the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. You say, Pastor Monty, what did Jesus have to do to get that? He had to go to the cross. He had to die. The devil offered him a shortcut around the crucifixion, and Jesus said no. Can I tell you something about that? Of course, Jesus, the Son of God and God the Son, perfect self-mastery and an example to us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a word in our Bible that has such rich meaning and application to us. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would make application to each one of us about areas of our lives that if we're just honest about it, we're a little out of control. Thank you for your word. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.